A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Real Lives Untold podcast with myself, Trina O'Connor. And myself, Sarah O'Connor. We are focusing on all things crime and human interest. We're creating a space for people to tell their stories, the raw, unedited version. Today we speak to 35-year-old Welsh rugby star Wesley Cunliffe from Newport, who in his own words has said the sport saved him from a life of crime. At a very young age, as the eldest of his siblings, driven by poverty, circumstance and tragedy, he ended up working for drug gangs to support his family. As a teenager, he underwent life-saving surgery after he was stabbed following a drug deal. This was the turning point for him. He found rugby, developed a passion for it, and with the support of family and the police, he went on to play semi-professional rugby and is coaching people from disadvantaged backgrounds at the School of Hard Knocks. Sarah, we're joined today, as you said, by the wonderful Wesley Cunliffe. So Wesley and I, um, we met during the pandemic, didn't we, Wesley? Yes, we did. I think think the Welsh Rugby Union might have done a piece on me, I think, and I think it got quite got some traction I think went quite viral and I think you might have picked up on that there I think maybe yeah. um, I remember you just tweeted me saying I need to come to Dublin uh, yeah. one day um, yeah that's right yeah, and I was like yeah I'd definitely like to do that yeah and then you very kindly uh, did a seminar from me on uh, hostile takeovers of houses and cuckooing and that went out across Ireland and you gave a beautiful piece there so Wesley and I are now friends, whether he likes it or not, Sarah. Isn't that right, Wesley? You have not much choice. Wesley and I got to know each other over them years, and you told me a lot about your background. And um, when Sarah and I were putting this podcast together, we were talking about interesting people that we've met through our work, because Sarah will also have met a very uh, large amount of interesting people. But you were one that stuck out. So, Wesley, maybe you might start off by telling us a little bit about your upbringing, maybe about your parents, maybe about your siblings, and how that went for you in your in your early years? Yeah, I grew up in a little place, well, a little town called Newport, well, which we now call a city. Uh, I grew up in Newport. It is a working class town, I would like to call it. Uh, in Wales, you know, the valleys like the call people like me a townie, you know, f- from that kind of area. Mm-hmm. And I, I grew up in poverty in a place called Pill, uh, which is short for Pill Gwenly which is quite 
well known, got a, got a name for itself, especially around Wales and in the UK. Yeah, and a lot of crime, a lot of crime goes on there, a lot of poverty as well that goes on there. So it wasn't hard to get involved in that kind of life. It's kind of on your doorstep the minute you walk out your front door, even just going to the shop to get your groceries. It's it's right there in front of you, mm-hmm. you know. So um, so that was my environment, and then obviously I I live with my mother at first. Uh, she's a single single lady. Uh, my father wasn't really interested in myself and my and my siblings, so my mother struggled a little bit mm-hmm. in terms with substances, al- alcohol in particular, and she she tried to make against me and just couldn't do it. You know, she just generally tried, and and I think what she went through with my father, especially how he treated her as well, and I think that kind of put her into substances. I can kind of see that. Yeah. I can see my mother was back. I could definitely see my mother's battling her own demons, and it got to the point where the electric was at was always going off a lot. The gas, you know, not much clothes. I think me and my siblings we slept on a mattress for about for about three four years. So I just got I I just got involved in in just doing it was first off as little petty crimes, you know. Just um, I was stealing food at one point, you know. That was the kind of the start of things, stealing food. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if you remember them. The it, what I used to steal was the uh, the McCain. Do you remember the McCain microwave chips? Yes. Um, yeah. The, yeah. 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 So it was those kind of things. You know, Are they you, in a cardboard could, box? Easy to pinch. Yes, they were. <laughs> yes. 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 That's, ex- that's exactly the ones. Yeah. So I used to pinch those and the feed me, my, you know, me and my brother. So, so Wesley, and in, in the beginning, so it was it was necessity. It was because you were hungry. And and what age would you have been then when you first started stealing food to feed yourself and your brothers? Because you were like the kind of the head of the family, I suppose. Yeah, I was about eleven. When I first started getting involved in that particular kind of behaviour, I was 11 years old, uh, stealing uh, stealing food from the local Asda. Um, yeah. Whoever listens to this podcast now, I, I apologise to the, the poor security guards who had to deal with me at that time, uh, you know, because we were quite shifty. And obviously, as, as things got, as things progressed, I just got more in entwined and more in, more involved with other people of the community mm-hmm. and people from other communities coming in as well so i just got more entwined and obviously growing up as well in, in that kind of area me and my brothers we kind of had to defend ourselves based on our race as well yeah. uh, so we, we were you know we had a lot of a lot of issues with that even though when i grew up in pill we're a very diverse community outside of that area it's it's predominantly white in particular areas. So when we go out of our community, we, we would have to battle just just for you know the colour of our skin. So that was another thing that we all sort of deal with. And- Wesley, there were a lot of elements in that, and you were fighting for survival at that point because you were the oldest uh, of your siblings, weren't you? So you were trying to maintain the family, as Trina was saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I lost my grandmother when when we were young, and obviously my my mother lived with my grandmother. Uh, at the time so my grandmother was kind of the head of the family like raised me you know mm. with w- you know with my mother and then obviously when she passed away um i think my mother went downhill again you know battling the demons again mm-hmm. and i think that's where i had to step where that's where i had to step in and you know kind of take that figurehead in the house and as that was happening i'm not a violent person but mm-hmm. you know it's kind of you're, you're surrounded by violence so 
sometimes I had to respond with violence. Mm. And and I did like doing it. And even to this day, I still think myself, I, I can't believe I did things like that. But mm. it, 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 I had to, I had to. It yeah. was one of those things where yeah. if, I, if, I, if I didn't, if I didn't, it, you know, it could end up very wrongly for me. Yeah. And, and, and what age, Wesley, do you kind of recall being coerced into, you know, being because you ended up ultimately being involved with drug gangs, didn't you? So what age can you remember the first time? Because you were obviously groomed by older people because you were young. Um, what age can you remember your first drug criminal behavior? I was 13. 13, oh my goodness, and a baby. How did that, can you remember how that happened, Wesley, exactly, mm. and what, what you were asked to do? And how, what did you get in yeah. return? So it, it, it came about, obviously, like I said, when I grew up, it wasn't hard to find, mm. to, to find things like that. It wasn't hard for people to spot us either to get involved in that kind of life. But it was I, exactly how sad it was. Uh, I was asked, can I babysit? And and I said, babysit what? He said, can you babysit, you know, the kids in my house? And I said, what kids? And he went, you know, just the kids in my house. Yeah. So it's like, okay. I was like, okay. And I did that like one night. I remember it plain as day. It was a Friday night. And I just did that for the night, just sat in the house. And the Saturday morning, uh, they came in and gave me a hundred pounds. You know, it was 50 pound notes then. They just gave me a hundred pounds. And they were like, they're like, young blood, do you want to keep doing this? Do you want to eat in this dough? I was like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, yeah, just keep babysitting. And he said, just sit by, sit by the phone and we'll let you know when we need the babysitter. I so said, yeah, so yeah, for yeah, our no, listeners, yeah, no, Wesley, for, for our listeners, babysitting, you weren't babysitting children. Maybe you might explain what exactly you were doing in the house. Yeah, so I was babysitting drugs, mainly mm. Class A drugs, um, uh, ecstasy and heroin. They were the main, and cocaine. They were the three main drugs that was that was in the house. Um, I wouldn't sell or or nothing at that point. It was literally just sit in the house, mm. and obviously it was just to have somebody minding the you know minding the drugs and the products in the house. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my first that was my first taste of it, and. It just kept happening, and regularly it was like every weekend it was happening. So every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I just go out and babysit. And then on the Sunday, I finish like in the night time, I just get paid three hundred fifty pounds in fifties. They're like, it cash my hand. They're like, you are brother, you're three hundred fifty pounds. So obviously with that money, then I was I was buying gas, I was buying electric, I was buying me and my brother my brother's clothes, I was buying us food, <clears throat> buying us shopping, um, I was paying you know paying the rent. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you would know the custom over here would be, um, I'm not sure if Ireland might have things similar back in the day, but when I was younger, you could go to your local housing yeah. council office yeah. and yeah, and pay and pay your, your stamp and your rent over yeah. the counter, you know, yeah. um, and you pay the rent and you get a stamp on the book and to say, yeah, yeah, you know, a week's rent has been paid. So <clears throat> I used to do a lot of that. And obviously as I got older then, that's when things started getting deeper. And were you, in terms of the money and the rewards for the crime, was it at the time, did you think it was glamorous? Did you enjoy being involved in it? Or was it, were you very aware of what you were doing? That it was wrong? Yeah, that's, now that's the, that's the key question, isn't it? And that's the key part I think people kind of overlook because they say glamorised. And do you know what? For me, it wasn't glamorized to me at that point. For me, it was literally we were poor and we needed money yeah. for me. But then obviously when when you're in that environment then, that's when it gets glamorized to you. Okay. You know, when you 
when you're in that environment, it gets glamorized. So I'm sat in there, I'm babysitting, you know, all, all these people will come in the house, you know, with their gold chains on, with their clothes on, you know, girls hanging off their arms, you know, champagne, moway everywhere, you know, is all that kind of thing. And that's when things start being glamorized to you, you know, mm -hmm. because initially I just walk into a, into a flat, uh, just some dusty flat, sat on, sat on some drugs on my own. That, that's, yeah. There's nothing glamorising about that at all. Wesley, when you were babysitting in these houses and you were 13 up to maybe about 16, um, did you ever have any violent altercations and were you ever injured at any stage protecting the drugs? Yeah, I, had, I wasn't injured while I was babysitting. Um, the injuries come later on down the line, as you know, we will be talking about. But initially, um, there was one occasion where uh, I don't know who they were, just a group of people were trying to break into the house. And I remember that they put their hands to the letterbox. And where we grew up on the estate, it wasn't it wasn't too hard. If you was if your hands are skinny enough, you could go up to the letterbox and, yeah. and and catch the latch, you know. So so I just remember seeing a couple of hands in there. So I had a baseball bat right by the toilet door. And I just pulled it out. And I just started smashing people's hands on the baseball bat, uh, you know, and I just heard them swearing, you know, oh, my God, effing fucking, uh, you know, oh, my God, oh, we're going we're gonna to rinse your brother. We're going to rinse your brother. You're going to get it, bro. You're going to get it. I'm like, well, fucking come on then. And then they were trying to bash the door down. And luckily for me, there was people on the estate that, that knew what was going on. So I had, I suppose, backup, really. They would just run out, yeah. you know, and go like, oh, what are you doing? What's happening? And there'd mm -hmm. be a bit of a ruckus outside. Mm -hmm. And then I'd open the door and, and join in a little bit then and start hitting people. Um, were you, know, were you um, not, Wesley, were you not frightened, Dan? You're only a kid. You're only a baby yourself. Do you know what? At first, at first I, was, I was petrified because yeah. there was... I noticed like three sets of hands coming from the letterbox and I'm, and I'm hitting the letterbox from the other side with a bat. And I'm thinking if they get in, you know, I'm in big trouble here, but at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, well, no, if I don't do this, then I'm going to be on the wrong side of that. Yeah, so you're going to be in big trouble and either way. Yeah. Yeah. So there either were, way. Yeah. Either way. There were, there were a lot of close calls I'd imagine. And there was, a final turning point for you, wasn't there, after a, a drug deal was completed? And I think, was it three guys followed you off a train? Can you tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, I was, I was 16, just, yeah, I was 16, club 17 at this point. And that's where, I, that's where I was saying things got deeper as I got older. Yeah. And I was, on a, I was on a train coming back. Uh, I, I went and collected um, the drugs you know, from a place and I was on my way back and I just noticed at the train station that three boys, you know, a little bit on down the aisle and I just kept looking to my right and they, they kept looking at me. As I was looking at them, they would look away and I thought to myself, okay, I, I, I need to spot them. Um, and what I mean by spot them, they could be spotters, which means they, they, they probably followed me when I entered that area and followed me to that area. They watched what I did, what I picked up, and, they, and it's like what we what we call a gamble. So if they did rob me, they, that's a gamble. What's in that bag? And it's either going to be drugs, money, um, weapons, or all three. You know, it's a massive gamble that they'll yeah. take on that. And as I got on the train, they jumped on the train a couple of block, a couple of doors down, and I just and I just saw them doing that. So I just walked up two carriages up. 
And I noticed that they walked up to carriages. I was like, okay, they are definitely coming for me. And as, as I was entering Newport, I saw the three boys pull up the balaclavas. And I was like, yeah, they are definitely, they are definitely coming for me. So as I got off the train, I ran. And as I ran, I got cornered. And as I got cornered, I turned. When I pull out my weapon, but at this point, there were other weapons out on him. So they were like, give us the fucking bag, bruv. Give us the bag. And I was like, nah, you're having no bag. Mm -hmm. They were like, listen, bruv, you're going to get shanked. You're going to get juked, bro. You're going to get juked. And I was like, don't care. You're not having the bag. Because if I lose that bag, that's going to be worse off than actually the stabbing itself, yeah. um, you know, at the time yeah. in my head. So they come at me, and I just put the bag in front of me. And I was swinging, uh, you know, like windmills, kicks, it just just anything I, I, I can do. And obviously, adrenaline's kicking in. Everything is absolutely chaos, absolutely chaos, everything that's going on. And all of a sudden, I just remember blue lights um, turned on. And it, and it makes sense because it didn't happen far from the train station. So I know transport police are very, very nearby at those train stations. And I just remember hearing armed police, armed police. And I put my hands up and the, and the boys got arrested. And the police officer said to me, you're all right, mate. And I just remember that I just felt very lightheaded. Start, I started breathing fast. And as, as, my, as my adrenaline was slowing down, I started feeling a lot of pain. And that's when the lightheadedness kicked in. And I just looked down my, my left arm. It was honestly dripping. And I just remember looking at the floor and there was a pool of blood. It's literally just dripping off my fingers. And as I looked down on my, as, to my stomach area, I can see blood. I just felt warmth all over my left side and my front of my body. And I also felt like a tingling and a numbing sensation. But and did you realize the, the seriousness of it at that point? It was adrenaline, yeah, I probably. I absolutely did. Okay. That's as my adrenaline was slowing down, I just felt a lot of pain, a lot of things going on. And I looked at my right arm in my forearm and I saw blood coming down that hand as well. And I, and I was like, oh my God, and I just felt like I had a police officer. All I remember was a police officer just went on his radio and I just woke up in the hospital. That's all I remember. And, uh, I just woke up in the hospital. Wesley, how many times were you stabbed? Six. Oh my God. Did you, did you think you were going to die? I, th I thought I was going to die and this is going to sound absolutely crazy at that point I didn't really think of that at all fairness it, at all thing, I can't explain it it just went blank everything went blank for me mm -hmm. the minute that police officer said that I need we, we need assistance or whatever he was saying and I just it just went from that to waking up in the hospital a few days later you know and I woke up on a ventilator I tried to pull the thing out um, and then the doctors and nurses come in to calm me down and then they, they give me give me more medicine and to put me back out again um, and I come around in like another day or two later without the ventilator and you know my grandparents my grandfather was there you know um, and my great-grandmother was there because she was alive at this point wow. uh, my great-grandmother so my granddad's mother and you know they were both absolutely worried to death mm -hmm. uh, you know when, when they saw me come around and, and yeah you... that's that from the stabbing to that point I just, it, it was blank and you had undergone life-saving surgery, so it was it was that serious. It was a very close call, wasn't it? Absolutely. And with, with, with a stabbing, um, hence why I, when I do what I do, which I'll touch upon later, when the doctor explained to me why I had so many stitches, you know, 
place all around my body and, and other little scars placed in my body is because when I got stabbed in the stomach area, the police, uh, sorry, the police had to give me first aid at the scene. But obviously when they told the paramedics what happened and I got into the hospital, the doctor told me that he had to go keyhole surgery through my belly button and search around my stomach to see if any of my organs have been, have been cut in half oh or God. been damaged from the stabbing. Um, so I have to have that done as well. So all around my stomach, I just got like little tiny scars everywhere where they had to go in and check if, if everything was okay. Was my appendix um, burst? You know, did that happen? Did, did they, was, it, was my, my kidney um, severed or cut? Was my liver cut? My intestines, were they were they cut? You know, you have to, and any internal, any internal bleeding, anything else from that? So yeah, when he told me that, I, yeah, I was like, oh my God. And Wesley, after such a traumatic event, when did you realise that you needed to get out of this cycle of crime? Like, was it long after that or what happened then? Uh, so, I would like to say that was one big turning point for me, but there was so many other turning points as well, um, you know, up until that, you know, after that point as well which is why the work I do now and work I want to do in the future is so important um, to try and get that, that, that point of my, that point of view across is that the stabbing was definitely the first part for me where it was like, I was very lucky. This could have been very, very different, which I know because I'm sure you see on the news in, in Ireland, in, yeah. in, in Wales, in London, you know, young people all over the country just lose their lives unnecessarily at so young age as well. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky. And the, and the reason I lived is because the police officers gave me first aid at the scene. Yeah. That's the only reason that I lived. Yeah. Nothing more. Because do you think and they were setting out to to kill you? Uh, I, I wouldn't say set out to kill me. Um but obviously, you know, I, I don't understand how dangerous a knife actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, e- even even a stab to the shoulder can be really can give you real yeah. serious consequences of yeah. of that. And you know, like bleeding out and things like that. Hence the fact that's why I survived because mm-hmm. the, the police give me first aid. You see, in your situation, Wesley, like like Sarah says, where they setting out to kill you, like Sarah, I think a lot of the time in these kind of instance it's just the person is just collateral damage Mm. like like as far as they were concerned they They just just wanted to get the bag you were standing in their way Mm. and they were willing to do whatever they had to do to get the bag did they get the bag wesley no (laughs) they didn't get the bag (laughs) and that's what i wanted to know after this i I was wondering did they get the bag and and what repercussions were in that for you so what what happened if that was the turning point how did you get that message across to and these may seem like ridiculous questions how did you get the message across to your superiors in the gang that you you didn't want to be part of this anymore yeah well it was one was luck and one was this is going to sound absolutely absolutely out of out of character but I had a good relationship with the superiors. Right. Um, it, 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 it wasn't... They knew I wasn't a talker. They knew that. They, they knew that. As um, I'm telling you now, I haven't told you where I've gone. I didn't tell you where I went. I didn't mm. tell you what address. I haven't said, I haven't said Jack. So, mm. and, and they know that as well. They, they know that I didn't say anything. And, you know, t- and to the point where, where you asked how the turning point, they didn't get the bag. And this is where now it flipped on his head on me. So when, I was, when, I, when that happened and I finally fit and I was able to talk, the, the police was there to come and see me. And, you know, typical teenager, you know, F off, 
no comment don't know who it was not a snake not a grass go away mm -hmm. and they were like i think you, they were like and they were like uh i think you misunderstand mr cunliffe you're under arrest for possession of class a drugs and tenant supply i was like you what and the and the doctor looked at me went i'm sorry mr cunliffe he said when you came in on the table he said you're a 16 year old boy he said i had to find out who you were so I opened up the bag to see if I could find any identification, and I found all this in the bag, mm -hmm. and I just, I just, I just sank into the into the bed, and I thought, please, just the ground, just swallow me up now. And he said, "I'm sorry." He said, "I just rang the police and said, look, I think this young lad is in trouble, mm -hmm. you know." And the police turned up and obviously found the stuff in the bag, and that's when I got arrested. Um, and obviously, I was held in custody <clears throat> while I was in while I was in the hospital, and obviously when I was able to leave hospital. Um, I went straight to the central and I got processed there and I got remanded to a young offenders uh, institution for eight weeks, it would have been. And that was due to two things. When it, was a it was a legal battle between my grandparents and solicitor with, with the Crown Prosecution Service. So my solicitor was going for a looked after child approach to it so even though you're in the young offenders sometimes young offenders in secure units they can put you there for your safety not just for crime mm -hmm. so that was the battle between the two then it was it one half was the other and luckily i was in only in there for four weeks totaling down from eight when my grandparents won the battle for they said that you know they want to put in for custody for me um you know as as their legal guardian and so that that was that was literally the start of the turning point i literally had a close call and then my solicitor come and paid me a visit and he said you are going to go to court for your offense and he said the two things here mr cunliffe he said you your first offense ever ever but he said your first offense is very very serious yeah so he said this is a so this is a 50 50 and i was like shit oh this is not good and he was like, why do you think it's not good? I said, what do you think that some black young kid from Pill is going to do with the rest of Tony Blair's millions? And he was and he was like, listen, you're going to be absolutely fine. You're going to be absolutely fine. Don't worry. Um, you know, we'll, we'll push. And that's when the turning point happened, really. That was, mm -hmm. that, that was generally one of the start of the turning points. And so how did you progress then into rugby? Had you been playing it a little bit at that point or... Can you tell us about how it happened? <laughs> yeah, so it was so it, it was quite it's kind of funny. So um, when I was when I went to court, um, so I'm not sure if you have the same thing in in Ireland, um, yeah. in Wales, when you, when you have a youth court as a panel of like four judges. The lady said, "Please stand, Mister Cunliffe." So I stood, and she said, "Okay," and she said, "I got two options." I said, okay. She said, option A and option B. I said, what's option A? She said, four years in custody. I said, okay. She said, be out in two and a half. And she's going like this. I was like, okay. I said, what's option B? She went the opposite to option A. I said, what's option B? She said, well, option B is going to be license. I was like, right. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. She goes, because I can tag you until you're 21. I was like, right. I think... She said, I think what would suffice for you if we tag you for the duration of your suspended sentence? I said, what we're looking at? She said, you'll be on license for two and a half years. I said, okay. And she said, Mr. Cunliffe, also. I was like, yes, miss. She said, also, you're going to go back to education. I was like, okay. She goes, I heard you're a bright young lad. I said, oh, no. I said, I'm not bright, miss. Not at all. Not at all. She goes, well, she said, well, I heard you're a bright young lad. And she says, so there was two police officers over there. And I looked to my right, and it was the, the local police officers, the ones that you might have saw in the past, my videos. And they said, do you know what they did? I said, no. They said, they're not even on duty. They just come today, this morning, before you turned here. And she said, they, they told me about you, hence why I wanted to have that conversation with you. She said, because this person the police were telling me and what it says on this paper are two different things. So I wanted to make this judgment before, if I did make a wrong one. And she said, I also heard on a grapevine, Mr. Cunliffe, that some of the money that you did earn, you used to buy shopping for some of the elderly. She said, because the law says you should go to prison. She said, but the humanity in me, she said, says you should have a second chance. So I was like, okay. And she said, so you're going to go back to education. Whatever that looks like, she said, I'm going to be flexible on that. You're going to go back. But she said, you are going to go back to education. It's like, okay. Thirdly, she said, you're going to go back into sport. And I was like, right. And she said, rugby. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> The irony of it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you took that second chance, Wesley. So where did your rugby career bring you then? So I, <laughs> I, I played for the local side, St. Joseph's, and... Um, they're the local rugby club in my area. And there's a gentleman there called Mike, Mike Dawkins. And he kind of knew who I was. Obviously, in my community, it's a small community. And mm-hmm. um, your name gets around. They know who you are. So he kind of knew who I was. And, and you know what? And that was another little turning point for me. Somebody who didn't judge me for what I did. He was just like, you know, we're going to get you trained to play rugby. So I, I started playing, started enjoying it. Got better and better, you know, in terms of my, of my age. And started enjoying that. And then... All of a sudden, out of the blue, there was this gentleman called Steve Jones, Snickers, and they used to call him the Snickers, and and he said, Newport Youth Academy are looking for players, and we're, we're going to send invites to all the local clubs in Newport to, to send players. So Mike, my coach, said, I'm going to send Wes. So he sent me, and I got picked to play for Newport against, against Penethley for the under-19s, mm-hmm. and I was on the wing. And uh, um, got got the tag on, 
uh, you know, and <laughs> my youth offending, my, my, my youth offending officer granted me uh, a 24 hour extension, you know, into the evening because it was an evening yeah, kickoff. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, yeah, that would grant me an extension in so I wouldn't get breached, so I wouldn't breach. Yeah, so, um, so, so, so I played and it, I, I played in my local, my local pitch pill and it was packed, like loads of my friends and family were all coming here. And my coaches and the and members of the club come to watch me as well. And I played the game and I scored two tries. And I, I don't know all, you know what it's like when you're playing rugby, people having chats on the sideline. And the team manager, Snickers, just walked past my my old youth coach and went, you're not seeing that young lad again. Yeah. That was and it. My, Fantastic. Yeah, my old, yeah, and my old coach said, I gathered that by the way you play today. So after the game, Mike just shook my hand and he hugged me and he went, you need to take this opportunity. Yeah. I was like, okay. He said, honestly, take this opportunity. He said, whether you go professional or not, you need to take this opportunity. He said, this is something yeah. that doesn't happen very often. So I was like, okay. And that's why when Newport Youth played there. Your healing was beginning. Your your body was healing from the stab wounds. That was only a year before this. Your 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 person was healing. And also, uh, you, you've said that rugby saved you and it became nearly your second father. Yeah, it was, and and the reason I say second father, I was, I was very close with my mother's father, my granddad, uh, but I've always called him dad, and because he raised, he's been with me from the get go. Um, if I showed you all the all the family photos when I was a baby, he was never too far away of me, from me in that photo. Um, even even when my when his sister, my great auntie, is holding me, he's literally right next to her. You know, there's not many pictures when I was a kid where he wasn't in there or nearby, and. You know, he stuck with me from 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 the get go. You know, stuck with me, and and even though he's my granddad biologically, you know, the relationship we had was father and son. Mm-hmm. You know, we really had that relationship, and and he was he was a big part of my life, and biggest part of my life really as a father figure. Because when I started making those changes, because I left the old life behind, yeah. he was the only support network I had. Yeah. And when I lost him in two thousand nineteen, we we lost him to cancer, and. You know, and it was like it, it was like literally life just went in a massive circle. What rugby taught me then was certain things what I could learn and take on in life in the future. And Wesley, because because of what you've done turning your life around and I know cancer is a is a horrendous um disease to have in any family. I, I lost my own dad in twenty nineteen from cancer as well. So I totally relate to you and we would do anything we would do anything, wouldn't we, we to keep them here. But I, I do, I think it's important to point out that in your dad, in your granddad, your dad's honour, you now work with people to stop them getting involved in crime the way you did. So you went on to play for Wales and rugby. You played for the Jamaican Sevens. Your granddad went passed away peacefully. He knew you were well. He knew you were good. And now you're a dad yourself. So could, maybe you might tell us a little bit about your life now and what you do now and maybe a little bit about your own family. Yeah, so uh, what, I, what I do now is um, I work with young people and I also go around um, schools, around local communities, telling kids my story about how how I got involved in, in in drug dealing and carrying knives, and I just I just give it an unvarnished truth to mm-hmm. the young people Brilliant. about the risk and consequences if you get involved in that. And and the, and the reason I say the unvarnished truth is because I think that needs to be said because I know I know good work goes on, but I think for me personally, how I connect with young people and I connect with their families on that very fundamental 
human level that I've been in your shoes. I know mm. where you're coming from. And they'll take your advice on board. And also you did, you, you were a big part of that campaign against carrying knives as well, which was a big problem over there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I mean, Newport itself, we, we started to see a rise in, in knife crime. A young lad lost his life, you know, not too, not two years ago. Another couple of young lads lost their lives in Cardiff not too long ago. Um, you know, London, every other week, you see on the news or in the paper that some young person has been has lost their lives 14 15 16 years old and they you know a lot of them are, are passing away even before they're old enough to vote when i go in the communities and i say to young people look hand your knife into me give me no names ask no questions need no lies as they say so you're coaching kids you're a dad now as well and you're still playing rugby i'm busy, busy Wes, yeah. Wes is very busy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm going back to rugby this year. You know, I took some time out, obviously, just before the lockdown. I took some time out, obviously, because I was looking after my granddad. Yeah. That was a big reason why I stepped back from rugby for a while. I am going to go back to that this year. I, you know, this October, I want to really, again, make the Wales Rugby League Dragon Out squad. Good for you. I really want to, I desperately make it this year. Um, even though people say, where's God do it for you? I am doing it for me. And obviously, most importantly, I'm doing it for my children. I want my children to be proud of their dad. When I was training for Edvale and they asked me to sign, that's the, like the top club you know, in Wales. That's a, a very well-recognized club. And for the first time, I'm being rewarded for, for doing something positive. So I walk on that pitch and there's two, 3,000 people chanting Ebu. I'm absolutely cacking my pants. And then <laughs> they're saying to me, I'm... You know, they, you know, they say to me, you know, the bank side, Wes is the bank side, the, you know, the favourite, the bank side. And, you know, when I went to that club, it really changed me. They, they, they didn't care about my race. They didn't care about my colour. They didn't care about where I come from. And they knew where I come from. They knew exactly the other story. They didn't care. They just saw Wes, a rugby player. And then, but when I work with these young people and they want to leave that life, but then they go, Wes, I don't know if I can do this apprenticeship. I don't know if I can do it. And I, that's where I now know where I need to come yeah. in. I know yeah. why I call, why I call still, still serving your sentence. You are completely inspiring because what I hear from you in every uh, situation, you seem to look for the positive. You, you, you also seem to truly believe in second chances, being a personification of second chance yourself. And you don't hold any resentment to anybody who let you down because you were let down. In, in lots of different ways throughout your childhood in particular, but you don't have any resentment towards anybody. And what would you say to somebody who finds themselves caught up in a criminal gang being coerced? And what, what would you say to that person? What would be the first thing that they might do to try and help themselves move away from that? I think, I think the, first, the first thing is they need to accept that, you know, if they're good in this road, they know where they're really going. I think they need to accept that first start. I think for anything at all, whether that's addiction or, or in, in, in crime in general, I think you need to accept that you are in 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 over your head and you need to accept that. And, and I think you also need to accept that if you do good in this road, it's, it's, it's a good chance it's not going to end well. It's yeah. not going to. Um, that's the first thing I would say. You've got to accept that. And when you accept that, and what I would say to a lot of young people now is please speak out to somebody. Yeah, yeah. And and your honesty, um, Wes, is, is just astonishing. And your willingness to share some of the hardest times in your life and to share them to 
give people that message that there is hope after you've been involved in crime. And I, I, I don't know, Sarah. I, um, it's just, it's, it's you just, can tell, you yeah. can feel it. And I know you're online, Wes, but you can just feel your passion and yeah. your resilience. And that's the driving force behind you. It's what's keeping you going now. And you're, you're so determined and empathetic as well. <laughs> I, I, I was, I'm not going to lie, I was a menace to, to the communities that I was in, you know, I, 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 I can't deny that. And I think it's only fair that it's only fair I got to try and make that right. And I think I'd make that right by making sure the next generation doesn't do Brilliant. the same thing, you that's know, and, and I think that's the same thing for me. And I would just like to say to you both, so you can hear it first here, that I'm currently in talks with a, with third sector experts. I'm looking to start my own foundation, wow. my own charity. Wow. Uh, yeah i'm looking to do that so that's also that's gonna be my busy my busy few months now for the next couple of months i'm looking to get that up and running um so hopefully i will see you on island very very mm -hmm. soon it's gonna sound really crazy and really silly but you both relate there because you're both o'connor's no, no we're not no dublin trina is dublin i'm cork but you're of the waterford o'connor's i am and i'm of the kerry o'connor's because my dad is from kerry so no, not mean? related. But I'd say way, way back. Oh yeah, there was some relationship somewhere along the line. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, oh, we just we, have to okay. find it. Did you have you travelled to Ireland? I, I think you mentioned Kinsale during the interview. You did. You played rugby over here, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I played in the Kinsale Sevens, and it was it, it it was a great time. I was only over for like like three four days. Um, but it, it, it was amazing. Um, we, 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 I stayed in the Acton Hotel in, in Kinsale. And it was beautiful, beautiful town, beautiful mm. place. Um, I remember speaking to the gentleman and the gentleman said, oh, you, you have the rugby. I said, yeah, it's over now. So we're spending the weekend. And he said, you Welsh, Welsh boys. I was like, yes. They're like, oh, you like a drink? I was like, yeah, yeah, we don't mind it. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> out of nowhere, these three gentlemen just, they just pulled out instruments yeah. just out and of their pockets <laughs> it's him we still have the top pocket <laughs> they, were, they, yeah. they, they were amazing and then the, the girl who the other girl who worked in the bar she she just ducks down and pulls out a fiddle <laughs> i love it listen and, wesley that's the norm that's that happens everywhere yeah. in every corner you go to in ireland I, mm. do you know what i could not you believe it longer. And all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, everything went mad. It, I just, I never seen nothing like it. It was uh, absolutely crazy. Oh, well, listen, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast today. And we really do hope to see you yeah. in, in Ireland. And maybe we might find a session somewhere yeah, at some I'm stage. Yeah, sure we will. We'll be pulling fiddles out of uh, our pockets. <laughs> well, no, I won't. <laughs> well, filthy minds. Uh, filthy I, will, minds. I, will, I will play the Tim Whistle, personally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks again thanks, for Wesley. everything, Wesley. Continued success to you. Take care. No, thank you both for having me. Really good, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can contact us on social media at Real Lives Untold. Our email address is reallivesuntold at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to hear this season's episodes every Wednesday. You can listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.